The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So. Uh, Nine, ten. Five, six, thirty-four, thirty-seven. Hot, hot, shlamazel. I was talking to a guy. Um, I forget where we were. Maybe it was while I was still at Acro Camp. I was talking to somebody, and the subject of the uh, of the time-honored uh, tomahawk, uh, uh, sometimes known as a tomahawk, came up, and he said to me that the reason. And see, I've never flown a tomahawk, um, so I have no direct knowledge. And to be honest with you, I'm not totally clear on why tomahawk, the tomahawk has a bad reputation. Can one of you guys educate me? Why, why does a tomahawk have such a bad reputation? Um, well, I got my private in a tomahawk. You, you did? Actually. Okay. Yeah, I did so, my primary. So you're I'm totally comfortable with it, Fareed? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put it this way, that uh, ignorance is bliss when I was a primary student. And but I knew I kind of knew that uh, because Piper was I think it was because they're trying to save weight they uh, they skimped a little bit on the uh, wing structure uh-huh. so it would have some twisting in the wings uh-huh. um, and so when you got close to stall you would have a different angle of attack as you ran along the wing and so it had a tendency sometimes to enter into a spin um, when uh, it stalled and sometimes. You had a hard time getting out of it because it would kind of go flat pretty quick uh, once you got into the spin. Okay. And, well, yeah, that's that's not good. Is that, uh, that's what you guys, other guys, that's your your you know. I, I've I've got some hours in a T Hawk also. I, I've never spun one. Um, you know, I'm, I'm crossing myself here as I say that. <laughs> uh, but I think Farid is is uh, spot on. Um, the aircraft meets all the certification standards. It's a safe aircraft. Yada yada yada. Um, it does have some quirks, um, and uh, one of those quirks is um, uh, the airframe is not as um, stiff, perhaps, as we are accustomed to. Uh, that extends not just to the wings, but also to the tail. Um, I have not done it. I don't recall that I've ever really uh, stalled a T-Hawk either, but um, um I'm told that during a stall, uh, when it's in the buffet, one can turn around and look at the T-tail and look at it, you know, kind of oscillate a little bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, really? Yes. The wings, um, yeah, the wings will oil can. Um, uh, oh, yeah, when, that too. When they're buffeting, nice. you know, and that well, in and of itself will um, uh, alter the, the, the uh well, What flow. is it you mean by oil can? The the uh, sheet metal will vibrate. It will um, um, like you're crushing an oil can. Yeah, right. You can see it. The you can see it flexing between the rivets. Yeah. Is what you're describing? Basically, yeah. between the ribs. Yeah, you can sometimes see you can hear it. Yeah, sometimes you can probably hear it. Yeah, it sounds like someone's beating the side of the uh, airplane with a with a pole. And you know, I would hear that in a citation climbing out. You know, the upper levels, you could sometimes hear the oil can. Everyone's well, dunk. <laughs> You'd hear some an oil canning as you're climbing out, but you know that's over a range of altitudes. Um, when I was an instructor and I, w- I started instructing an airplane, oh, this is a great airplane. I look back and I could see that T tail just flopping away, and that was the noise of it. Dong, 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 dong. And <laughs> well, okay, we're not doing anything to repair its reputation here, are we? No, it's a, actually it's a 
it's a good trainer and but, and yeah. Go ahead. Fareed, actually, I'm sorry, Fareed, continue. Uh, the, the only thing I'll say is that when I was a primary student, minimum controllable airspeed was what was taught to primary students. Then they went to slow flight. And mm -hmm. you know, in the intervening years, I'd say between uh, – I did my primary training in 1990. By the time I became an instructor in 1997, 98, minimum controllable airspeed had returned again. Um, and, uh, and so you were back at, well, actually it was still slow flight, I think was the requirement at that time, but eventually they, they returned to minimum controllable airspeed. I couldn't believe that I was creeping around at MCA in that airplane as a primary student <laughs> because it was so, it was kind of that iffy now that I had that instructor knowledge about what was actually going on in the airplane. So it was kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. Jeb, I'm sorry, you were going to say something. You know, the airplane has a lot of other qualities. Um, for one, it, it is a relatively modern design, designed for training. So, for example, the fuel selector is, is right there in front. Um, oh, yeah. A lot of the other controls and, and uh, um, I don't know, cabin features and whatnot fall readily to hand. Um, it's it's um, a good Roomy. little airplane for... for um, uh, ab initio training for uh, uh, the $100 hamburger kind of thing. Uh, they do have this this bad rep for for you know uh, um, I don't know well known reasons maybe. Um, but uh, you know if if the price was right, if if the airplane was something that uh, you wanted, uh, it wouldn't be a bad deal. One of the the things though about the uh, about the Tomahawk that uh, isn't restricted to Piper. Uh, um, it it kind of does avoid um, uh, Cessna for the for the greatest part, but both uh, Piper and Beach in the late seventy mid to late seventies decided that T tails were the big thing, were the next great thing, and uh, the the Beach Skipper, which is kind of a uh, carbon copy of the uh, Tomahawk, got a T tail. Uh, Beach, I think Wiser Heads finally prevailed at Beach, and, and uh, all the Duchess and the Seminole both got T-tails about the same time because they were designed about the same time. Um, T-tails don't um, really add that uh, that much um, to uh, the aerodynamics of an aircraft like that. Um, you've got uh, unstick problems uh, on the runway. They, they tend to be runway hogs because... You don't have the prop blast adding uh, to the airflow over the horizontal stabilizer uh -huh. or the, the stabilator. Um, so it doesn't get off the ground as easily. Uh, on landing, um, the, the inverse is, is uh, there in that uh, sometimes the tail will stall well before the wing does, uh, resulting in you know, perhaps a less than graceful uh, arrival. Um, Actually, I thought the landings, it landed really nicely. It, it landed, landed like a big airplane. And so uh -huh. if you wanted to, to move up to larger, heavier airplanes, I tell you what, you felt like you're coming in like an airliner um, huh. a little bit. And I, I thought it landed pretty nice. Although, you know, it's, it's hard to beat a, a Landomatic 150, of course. No, exactly, exactly. I guess maybe maybe you might be right. I don't have that much time landing uh, trauma hawks, but uh, <laughs> I'm thinking more along the lines of differences between, say, uh, uh, an Arrow 3 and an Arrow 4. Well, I would agree with you. are right. Well, the location of the tail uh -huh. definitely affects uh, down there in the, the transition period between ground effect and, and uh, where induced drag starts to come into play. And so certainly that you have to alter your technique 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those, those of you out there who instruct, you know, when you jump in from a low wing to a high wing or for a T-tail to a, a low tail, uh, you know, your technique has to change a little bit about where you start that flare and how much airspeed you carry and so on and so forth when you're landing. David, you've been uncharacteristically quiet here. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> There's some quantifiable reasons where the nickname came from. Uh, beyond the the flight characteristics, and if you Google Tomahawk ADs, you'll see an amazingly long list of ADs that were issued starting the year the airplane came to market. Yeah, yeah. David has pointed us to a page. Uh, let's see the website. It's uh, PiperTomahawk.com/adlist.htm, and uh, it's quite a list. There was a time, and I can't say whether this is true anymore, uh, it would require checking against other aircraft, but there was a time when the Piper Tomahawk had the dubious distinction of having more ADs uh, issued for it than any airplane in production at the time. It's funny. Uh, this this is a pretty big, pretty tall web page. You scroll down, you scroll down, you scroll down, you scroll down, and at the bottom it says, go to page two. <laughs> yeah, this this list just goes from seventy eight to eighty two. Oh, uh, the page one does. Uh, the uh, there's a link to an AOPA Air Safety Foundation report from uh, ninety seven and a follow up. Uh, you know, the bottom line is that the airplane is still out there. It's still flying. It is. Uh, there's not a tremendous number of them because. The uh, the bad press and the extensive AD list and the onset of a market collapse did it in pretty quickly, yeah. uh, and Piper decided to concentrate on a variation of the uh, PA twenty eight Cherokee uh, to fulfill the two seat trainer role. They basically marketed one with no back seats. And I believe they called it the Cadet, uh, but the. Uh, you know the the wing issues that Fareed addressed are, are on the money. Uh, what Jeb was talking about is on the money. Uh, fact is, if the airplanes had all the AD work done to it, uh, it's been extensively looked at a couple of times uh, and been kept up to date. Uh, you don't hear about them causing problems like you used to, uh, and and like other airplanes that will definitely spin. Uh, you definitely need to know how to not spin an airplane. Now, see, this is what this what started this whole conversation is that uh, someone I was talking to said that 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 was intentional. That they designed this spin ability or spin, uh, uh, you know, um, inclination uh, into the airplane because he, the way he said it was that at the time of its of its you know design. They were transitioning back, and they wanted airplanes that would spin in order to be able to train spins. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so that's why, according to this person, that's why Tomahawks spin so easily, because it was designed into them. D- David, you think that's true? I don't know if it was meant to be that easy, but uh, uh, yeah, just spin, spin training, entry, and recovery uh, used to be part of the training standards. It used to be part of the practical test. Uh, right. Not every Czech airman would put you through it, but uh, this was before the day when we started to develop uh, wings with characteristics that made them difficult, if not impossible, to spin. 
David, looking at all these ADs, is there any sort of repeating theme here? Was there some aspect of the aircraft that that was weak, or was it just random things scattered all over the airplane? It seemed to be random things scattered all over the airplane, and a lot of folks attributed it to Piper's rush to get this kind of new trainer into the market in a big hurry. Uh-huh. Uh, and not deliberately short changing items or, or overlooking things, but just maybe not uh, giving them the attention that they would have with a more leisurely development program. And, of course, the flight test program, a lot of this stuff doesn't show up, won't necessarily show up in the in, in the flight test program for an airplane like this, particularly back in the middle 70s. Uh, they make them do more now. And they're talking about making them do even more, like function yeah. and uh-huh. reliability tests. So, Farid, so you did your primary training in a Tomahawk. Yes. And then, you, and then you did instruction in a Tomahawk. So, two questions. As a primary student, how many times did you unintentionally spin it? Never spun it. Either time. Really? Okay. That's what I wanted. So, so for all its reputation, and to be sure it sounds like something you need to be careful about, you you have some hours in a tomahawk, and it never unintentionally spun on you. No, but it always fell off to one side or another. I was never able to stall it straight ahead like other airplanes. Mm-hmm. And um, the only anecdotal story I ever heard about it was that, and this could be like uh, any number of those uh, urban myths out there, is that one student was on a, a CFI check ride with a, a FA examiner, and they went to do the spin when a spin requirement was still a requirement for the CFI test. And they got into a flat spin, and the only way they could get it, get it out of the flat spin was to unbuckle themselves and try to climb onto the instrument panel as much as you can do in a tomahawk uh, to get the weight forward enough to get that nose down. So well, that's, that could be an urban myth, but um, that's, that's yeah, at least I wouldn't what think was, that there's enough time to be that, you know, clever. <laughs> Depends on how high you start. I guess that's true. They were, yeah. I guess, according to the myth, they were up pretty high, or the story, the anecdote that I was told about that. Uh, I don't want to perpetuate it more than to say that... You just the, told it on uncontrolled yeah, airspace, man. You, yeah. you just perpetuated it. Um, well, I perpetuated the discussion of that... There are issues within the spin that uh, you know people have discussed before. Certainly, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> There's still a lot aside. of them happily flying along out there. Yeah, yeah. Just as an aside, um, Aviation Safety Magazine, under my tutelage, back in uh, October of 2005, did a feature article on. Uh, let's see, the title of it is "Tomahawk Revisited." Um, and a fairly in-depth study, a lot of numbers, um, some good material in here. Um, basically, um, we concluded that, uh, you know, it does have, uh, um, you know, spe- I don't know, specific characteristics, I guess, for, for lack of a better term. Uh-huh. But uh, a lot of spin testing was done um, by the author of this article. Um, and um, as a result of looking at some of the numbers here, uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't had a chance to really refresh my memory uh, on this article, but just looking at some of the charts and numbers here, um, the Tomahawk's um, spin behavior is, is um, relatively benign. For example, altitude loss um, per turn is only 198 feet. Uh, you know, let, me, let me rephrase this. Altitude and that's loss per spin turn 
Right. Okay. In a spin, how many feet are we going to lose per turn in the spin? Uh, it's only 198 feet versus a, a Cessna 150 at 265 feet. Uh, and these were, uh, again, a, a series of, of tests done um, uh, by well-behaved, well-experienced uh, well, uh, uh, pilots uh, with a variety of aircraft, including the Tomahawk and the 150, but also the Decathlon, a Pitt Special, a Citabria, and a Beach T-34. Mm-hmm. If, if you're going to buy a Tomahawk, I'd say go ahead. It's got great elbow room, great visibility. Um, it, it lands and takes off just fine. And it's a, it's an okay cross country airplane as far as it goes about as fast as it's going to go, which is around a hundred knots, maybe a little bit faster, um, a little bit loud in the cockpit, so have some noise canceling headsets. Um, and the stock radios were okay. I'm sure that some of that stuff has been upgraded, but there's really no reason to stay away from this airplane as long as you understand at some of the edge of the regimes that it might be a little tricky. And so just get some extra training, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Okay. Two paragraphs. Let me no, no, Go leave ahead. this right now. The two paragraphs from this piece uh, are, are pertinent to our discussion. I think kind of sum things up. Um, um, during stalls, sharp roll off to one side, extreme bank angles at the stall break, unpredictable behavior, noticeable oil canning and dimpling slash creasing of the wing skin. No perceptible nose-down pitch change in the propensity to spin from an otherwise routine stall. During spins, flat spinning tendencies and deformations in the supercritical wing that might adversely affect spin behavior. So that, that kind of sums up everything we've talked wow. about. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 189 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. You have been traumatized. <laughs> we are recording this episode on uh, Thursday morning, with an emphasis on the morning, May 27th, 2010. And uh, joining me here in the hangar is, uh, is some of my aviation friends. First of all, uh, Jeb Burnside is here, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you this morning? I'm fine, but I'm just an aviation friend. I... I... I Oh my goodness! You've caught me. Oh dear. Busted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, soulmate. My one of my aviation soulmates is here. Oh, Jeb Burnside. I, I, uh, how how you doing, Jeb? How, what's everything? How's everything down there? Is it? Uh, I'm, fine. I'm fine. Another beautiful day in paradise. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, where did I hear that there's a lot of thunderstorms down there this year? More than usual. I don't know. Maybe that's. Not... Well, we talked about that at last episode. Maybe that's I, what I, it was. Yeah. To my knowledge, it hasn't rained here. I, and I say to my knowledge, I haven't, <clears throat> for a variety of reasons, haven't ventured out of the house here much the last couple of three days. But uh, I've not noticed any rain, I don't know, going on uh, a couple of weeks now. A week and a half anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Also here in the hangar is Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Beautiful yeah. blue morning here. Uh we're uh, what back into another forty-eight hours with no thunderstorm, so off and running. Yeah, and also here in the hangar this week is uh, our good friend. Uh, I'm just getting in trouble for these friend re- representations. I'm going to get get consistent about this. Uh, get my friend references in. I start. Yeah, yeah. Farid Gio is here. Uh, who, boy, now this is complicated, Farid. You're going to have to explain to us how this all works now. But uh, but I do know this for a fact, and that is that you are talking to us this morning from the center of the universe, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. How are you doing, Farid? How are you? 
I'm I'm actually doing pretty good. It is clear blue and sunny. Uh, great late spring morning here in Wisconsin. Yes, I'm at the uh, headquarters for the Spirit of Aviation EAA. That's right. And we're going to talk about why that is in just a few minutes. <laughs> and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm talking to you from the UCAP Summer Headquarters, high atop Lookout Point in the really early in the morning, Nottingham, New Hampshire. Um, so, Farid, uh, my little notes here from the last time uh, for, for how to introduce you, the last time you were here in the hangar with us was to introduce you as EAA Radio's Afterburner Al and uh, and also to uh, introduce you, to describe you as a CJ3 pilot. Um, things have changed for you since then. Uh, you have a whole new career, a whole new purpose in life. What do you do these days? What's going on? What's changed? I think, I, I believe the last time I talked to you, I was furloughed. Uh, and I, I actually do you- recall that. You were furloughed or you <laughs> knew you were about to be furloughed or, yeah. Yes. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and, and there was a big question mark in your future. But things seem to have turned out just fine. And actually, I have uncontrolled airspace to thank for that, to tell you the truth. Oh, really? Because I was, um, I was back in Rockford, I think it was a couple days after Air Venture, listening back to your Sunday episode. And you were there with Hal Shevers talking about the youth programs manager position for EAA that they, were, they had announced and they were looking to hire. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, hey, I can do that. Yeah. And, um, and uh, that would be interesting and fun and all the other stuff. And, and so I put my, my uh, um, stuff in for that. And they, they called me back and said, you know, would you like to try this other thing that we have for you? And, and that is I am, I am in charge of all the electronic newsletters for EAA. Mm. So eHotline and nine other titles that, that go out monthly. eHotline's weekly and the others go out monthly. And so in the time since I started at the very end of August to now, um, I've launched three other electronic newsletters, a Warbirds newsletter, a light plane newsletter, and one for the IAC, the International Aerobatic Club. And also, of course, uh, EA.org, um, writing news stories, Air Venture Media. And I am the uh, station manager emeritus for EA Radio, maybe the Sith overlord for EA Radio. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> well, better, yeah. better as the... Uh, uh, staff liaison uh-huh. uh, EA Radio now. So, have how? What's the management of the radio station going to be like this summer? Uh, you obviously are going to have other responsibilities. It's not. It's going. It's not going to be seamless, but it's going to be pretty close. I've elevated someone uh, who uh, who is helping me out, um, mostly in an IT way, but uh, has lots of other capabilities, management wise and audio wise, uh, to take over that aspect. Uh, some of the listeners may have heard of Jim Gray before on the uh, on these airwaves, and and he is all he's been co station manager with me the whole time sure. anyway. So yep. he's not leaving. So that's really not a, a step. We're not stepping back that far. So we expect there will be obviously a little bit of a difference mm-hmm. from from you know when so, I was. So Jim is the person who will be the new station manager. Uh, no, actually, still a co station manager uh-huh. thing, and actually now it's it's its own air venture volunteer area. Before we were affiliated with the Green Gang or the Communication Center, EAA Communications, yep. uh, which is the announcer stand, and they, they run the public address system and a bunch of other things. But now we're our own volunteer entity. So uh, Tom Balistrieri, who is replacing me, and Jim Gray are the new co-chairmen of uh, EAA Radio. And, and so uh, they are now – and so they are in charge of, of that particular area. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's – uh, 
it's a little bit of a transition, but actually it's, it's improved EA radio and we've gone to 24 hours a day, year round broadcasting. We started that in, uh, well, we started that right before the convention, but we really kind of relaunched it in November again. And so I've been contributing interviews and reports the whole time from, from my desk here at EAA. Uh, and so it's been fun for me. Uh, I've, it's kind of like I get to do radio, but I, I guess I have to write a few uh, print stories as well. You know, mm-hmm. just it. <laughs> right. I was going to ask you that. So, you, so you do write stories as well as administer the whole area. Area. Right. Right. I I oversee the electronic news operation for EAA, and obviously I have to do write stories. We're not. We don't have this vast staff of writers or anything like that. It's it's me and your friend uh, Rick Reynolds. Uh, and uh-huh. we do a lot of the writing for eHotline and and some of the other publications. And then I have uh, editors, uh, freelance editors of all the publications that I work with. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah, cool. I don't know the hierarchy of, of the print world. So I guess the best way to describe me is a managing editor of electronic publications. Got it. Got it. Very good. Very good. Well, in a few minutes, we're going to pick your brain a little bit about uh, upcoming stuff for uh, this year's Air Venture. But mm-hmm. uh, let's move on to some other stories here and talk about some other things for a few minutes and then come back to that. Um, so posting in the forums uh, from a listener who goes by the uh, forum name of Cone, K-O-E-H-N. I'm not sure how we pronounce that. Um, he says, uh, uh, let's see now, he's talking about episode 186 uh, just a few episodes ago. He says, in the episode, uh, Jack posed and Dave seconded the question of what to do if someone is flying at night and loses the lights in the airplane without a working flashlight. Uh, he says, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I'm stumped in terms of a clever solution. So what should one do? We never t- he says, we never talked about it on the show. Is there something to be done? I mean, if you lose your, electri- your electrical system in the dark at night, anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Well, first thing I do is, if I'm talking to anybody, I say, uh, Houston, we have a problem. And... Uh, <laughs> Start looking for a place. Uh, this this is presuming that the radios didn't go out with the lights going out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that and start looking for a place with a lighted runway. <laughs> yes, I suppose if you got no lights, look for lights. I and, practice with all my students. They have to practice the landing light off. Right. Uh, yeah. And and so they have to be able to land with the landing light off. Sometimes I'll even turn down the instruments as well. That, that would be the one. We, we talked about this on the podcast over the last few months about uh, uh, my experience flying an airplane with fewer instruments than I'm used to. And flying without the instruments can be more than a little bit of a, of a, of a trial. Now, the NTSB just updated their, their definitions of what is considered a serious uh, accident or incident and to cover electronics uh, in the cockpit or electronic displays. And that in, in larger aircraft, uh, depending, there's a percentage of displays go out, you have to report it to the NTSB now. So they're actually responding to the innovation that is happening in your instrument panel, where because of all these primary flight displays, instead of you know uh, 10 or 20 round dials, they're all individually lighted, you, know, you lose one display, you lose a lot, and depending on you know the aircraft you're in, that might be a reportable incident to the NTSB. I like that. That's it's almost almost a euphemism. Responding to the innovation in your instrument panel. I like that. That's, uh, well, Fareed, Fareed mentioned having his primary students uh, land without the landing light and turn it down the cockpit lights. My my primary instructor turned off everything. It, anything that glowed or lit up yeah. uh, went away and. We were practicing at a little airport, uh, well, it was uh, Eureka, Kansas, uh, 
and the uh, runway lights uh, were at their dimmest setting, and it was really kind of a challenge. And then we headed over to another airport, which at the time had pilot control lightings and a timer, and they went off after 15 minutes. And uh, we uh, got within range, and I'm setting it up. Still no lights, and but I've got radio. And so I go to click on the, uh, m- the mic button to turn up the lights, and he reached over and shut my radio off and said, oh, you lost your radio, too. <laughs> So we had to work with night vision strictly, and fortunately, the there was a beacon, and the beacon would just faintly paint the runway uh, when the white light went by. The green light didn't do anything for it, and uh, we did three uh, three full stops and three takeoffs without lights there. He was adamant that uh, we'd be capable of flying the airplane more by feel and sound and what we could see in the way of a horizon as our pitch and roll reference. And uh, it, was, uh, it, was enough of a, uh, it, it was enough of a lesson that when I flew with him the next night to wrap up my night training, I had four, count them, four, new flashlights <laughs> yeah. as we've learned in the past sometimes having those flashlights in the training situation doesn't help you because the instructors keep throwing them out the window right. well Dave you say something about flying about with feel and, and that is true because really you don't need that landing light if you look down to the other end of the runway as you're judging your flare just like you would do in the daytime you're going to get a good landing so you don't really need to see the, the pavement that's right in front of you that that landing light will illuminate and you'll still get a good landing uh, if people remember that that landing light is maybe a foot to a foot and a half off the ground as it is, and so that's a visual illusion that you have to compensate for. So, the having the landing light is helpful, especially in taxiing and also landing for certainly. But do you do you absolutely need it when you lose some you lose a landing light or any other external lighting? Not necessarily. It would it the. Uh the whole experience of flying with no illumination in a cockpit and, and no outside lights on, on, on landing and takeoffs, that was uh, uh, created enough of a comfort zone for me that on a couple of night flights where the outside uh, scene was just riveting, I'd actually turn off all the inside lights in the airplane, you know, leave the position lights on so that people, other people could see me but turn down the lights in the cockpit uh, to get my pupils dilated about the size of dinner saucers so I could better take in the show outside. Like, uh, That's never the year, happened before. The year we were coming home from Sun and Fun where there was a, a comet and a big moon and a thunderstorm off about 50, 60 miles to, to the north of us. And oh, you mean a real comet? Not like Kansas the, on fire. You mean a real comet, not like the airplane, the comet. A real comet, yeah. yeah. This was about 90, I, I guess, 96, 96 or 97. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was that Kahootek? That, that was it, yeah. We steered, by the, we steered by that comet for about 400 miles. Did you see the spaceship flying behind it? Uh, no, but I did see Mulder and Scully. And, ah. uh, <clears throat> All right. Um, Clearly. No, I, oh, I think, uh, Jab, go ahead. Yeah, the... Um, the uh, light electrical failure, a lights failure at night uh, issue is is certainly something that 
uh, new private pilots should be training for. Um, I guess two things. One, you know, find um, find some light on the ground and find a lighted airport. And even if you have to uh, uh, land Nordo at a towered field, um, you know, safe and sound and on the ground uh, um, is, is the idea here. But um, yeah, I think as everybody here has said, you need to have a feel for the airplane. If you can't see the airspeed indicator, you can't see the power gauges, um, you need to kind of sort of know um, uh, by feel and by sound uh, where to put the power levers, uh, how to fly the airplane uh, into the landing. Um, landing at night without a landing light on, a, on, a, on an unlit runway is, is not difficult. It's a little frightening, a little tense. Um, you establish the, the, the flare attitude uh, earlier than you might otherwise, and you fly the airplane onto the runway. Um, and uh, nine times out of ten, you'll walk away. Um, it's not an, I don't know, I, I won't say it's not an emergency. It's, a, it's an operational consideration for, for sure, for sure. Uh, depending on the circumstances, it could well be an emergency. It kind of depends on, uh, on what you're trying to do and where you are and, and uh, a variety of other factors. Um, it's something that you might want to think about practicing with an instructor or certainly with a well-experienced pilot. Hmm. I certainly don't look at the airspeed indicator near as much as I used to do that. And one is familiarity with the airplane that, 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 uh, that I fly, but also it's, it's one, it's more about a feel for the airplane. And that, you know, as what we talked about, uh, you start the flare a little bit earlier, you looked down to the the other end of the runway, and you flare at the rate that you feel like you're sinking, and and you'll you'll set down pretty good. You won't certainly certainly won't damage anything. Uh, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it's hard to it's hard to tell you know uh, uh, someone a student pilot or a fresh private pilot to develop a feel for the airplane. Uh, um, it, that comes with with experience, with time in the airplane, and, and with a variety of different operations. Um, but that's really what you need to be able to do. Um, and um, one way to kind of fast forward to that is to go out with an instructor with those, those kinds of specific problems in mind and um, develop a feel for the sound and the sights and, and uh, just all the other sensations um, that are not presented by the airspeed indicator and the power gauges. And, and you're not, and, and you're right, Jeb. There's no shame in actually looking at the instruments and, and using no, them as part, as part of operating the airplane at all. We're not saying that. Yeah, there's well, no thank, shame at all. Thanks to listener uh, Cohn. I'll, I'll pronounce it Cohn or Cohen uh, for asking the question and uh, let us know if, how badly we answered that. And uh, we'll, yeah. we'll take another shot at it later on. No, I think it was a pretty good answer. I I I think I learned something from that. Let's see now. David, when we were in Lakeland, um, I had a chance to overhear a conversation between you and uh, another pilot, uh, and you guys uh, got into sort of waxing rhapsodical <laughs> about uh, uh, Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. Um, I came across a news item recently about the uh, sentimental journey. Uh, apparently, it's a, uh, a cub fly-in. Uh, almost a homecoming, it sounds like. That's exactly that's exactly yeah, what they call it exactly. too. Um, at, at Lock Haven, and and normally um, I'm calling attention to the fly-in might be a shout-out kind of item. Um, I was curious to hear you talk a little bit. Tell me a little bit about uh, Lock Haven. It sounded like a pretty interesting, and, and you know, kind of history-filled airport. Um, what's your experience with Lock Haven? 
Well, I've, I've never been there for the homecoming. Uh, I've never participated in Sentimental Journey. I've been into Lock Haven and uh, landed at the airport uh, there on the island next to the old Piper plant uh, in the past. And it's really quite a, 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 a lovely part of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's an island on, what is that, the Susquehanna River? Um, I believe it is, yeah. And, yeah, uh, you're right. It's the Susquehanna. It's way up there, but yeah, it's the Susquehanna. Yeah, it, it's way up there, and uh, and I, I believe it's on the west branch of the Susquehanna because they have a west and east branch. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was where uh, William Piper ultimately moved his airplane company, the one that was uh, started with uh, Mr. Taylor, and Mr. Piper bought it from Mr. Taylor, and we evolved from the. Uh, Taylor Cub, J one, J two, to J three, where all the J threes in the world, original J threes, came from Lock Haven. That was the ancestral home for Piper uh, for many, many years until a hurricane in, I believe it was nineteen seventy two, dumped so much rain on that part of the United States and flooded the factory so badly that they basically threw it, cashed in, and said, "That's it, we're." moving everything to Vero Beach. And they established a plan in Vero Beach in the year, late 50s, uh, 1960 time frame, where they had started building the, uh, the, the Piper uh, uh, Cherokee, the PA-28, and then the Tomahawk and so forth. But up to, that, up to the PA-24, uh, the Apache, the Aztec, the Comanche, and everything that came before that all came out of Lock Haven. So there's a sentimental attachment to a lot of uh, to Lock Haven among a lot of old Piper guys uh, or guys flying old Pipers, and the homecoming sentimental journey is this great little get together uh, where you'll see more happy little yellow cubs in one place than you'll ever see anywhere else in the world. It's worth 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 the overnight. Uh huh. Yeah. Have any of your other guys been to Lock Haven? Um, I've been there, but I've not been there for the homecoming. It, yeah. But not only what Dave just said, but the conversation I overheard back in Lakeland made it sound like just a great destination, a place to just go go for flying. David, I think you told a story. The, the conversation that night in Lakeland also included a road trip to go hang gliding or something like that? Uh, yeah, Heiner View State Park. Uh, it's a Pennsylvania State Park uh Oh, I'm fishing from memory. I'm going to say 40 or 50 miles uh, outside of Lock Haven, basically going up the west branch of the Susquehanna. Uh, and Heiner View State Park is on the north side of the river. Uh, great big high bluff. I guess it's about 14, 1,500 feet above the river in a very skinny valley. And right across the river is a 4,200-foot long kind of dog-legged uh, and, oh, gee, I mean, I'm going to say 300-foot-wide grass runway. Uh-huh. And several times a year, there would be major, when I lived in, DC, in the D.C. area, major gatherings of hang glider pilots uh, in that landing field. Uh, we'd set up camp up and down the sides. Uh, we'd sometimes have 400, 400 campsites and uh, 250, 300 hang glider pilots. Really? You could... Uh, Get left across the river and up the mountain to the state park, launch off the state park, soar, and then come back and land right there on that grass runway. And if you were good, park the keel post 
on your hang glider right in front of your campsite and just walk sideways a few feet and set the glider down and fold it up to go for the next time. Really lovely place to fly. Yeah. I, I'm not, I, I've driven through that part of the country, but I can't say that I have any vivid memories of it. But from just looking at it on the maps and so forth, it, looks, it must be pretty, pretty pretty in terms of the hills, and you're, you're definitely into the Appalachian Mountains and uh, that kind of thing. It, it, it's, it's quite lovely. Uh, it is one of the more challenging soaring sites that I've, I've ever flown. What uh, makes it challenging? Uh, there's not a lot of open field to create a lot of uh, a lift. Uh, the orientation of the ridge uh, doesn't uh, regularly favor the prevailing winds, so ridge soaring can be kind of iffy. Uh, but you can get good air there and ridge soar, oh, up and down about a five or six mile stretch if you're good. And the middle of the day when the sun's at its peak, the valley will heat up enough to, to thermal. And some pilots have gone some pretty good distances there, flown some pretty decent duration. Uh, we were always there as much for the camping fellowship and the partying as we were for the soaring, so... If we you, didn't Dave, go no. big distance, if we didn't go big distance, we really didn't care. <laughs> Color me shocked. Um, the uh, 25th annual sentimental journey to Cubhaven Fly-In uh, this year is going to be June 16 through 19, and uh, their website. We'll put a link in the show notes, but the, leb- the website is sentimentaljourneyflyin.com, and the only thing special about that is all one word except that fly-in is hyphenated. Uh, sentimental and, journey and flying. And you don't have to come in a Cub, and you don't have to come in a Piper, but you really should avail yourself if the opportunity is there. Sounds great. Sounds Oh, and it refers to a Piper Aviation Museum, so maybe that'd be interesting. Oh, the factory building's still there, too. Yeah, yeah. I have to check out Lockhaven. That's definitely within my, my circle of, uh, of range, if you will. Very cool, very cool. So, Farid, you're wearing a new hat these days, and... Uh, um, although we're we're going to do in about a month, uh, we're going to do a sort of formal um, air venture preview episode. Um, but uh, we are always interested to hear uh, about some of the stuff we're going to see this summer uh, when we all arrive in town. Maybe you can give us kind of the short version of some of the highlights, things that that are new and unexpected, and and uh, and let's hold off on the DC three thing. Let's talk about that all by itself in a moment. But. Uh, Tell us some of the things you guys at the office are looking forward to this summer at AirVenture. Well, we're looking forward to that, that night air show that's going to happen on Saturday. Uh, that's going to be fun because it's going to be you're going to have the normal Saturday air show, which is always spectacular because of the number of uh, warbirds they throw in the air and everything else. But then uh, they're going to a band's going to start playing while they kind of change the, uh, the the scenery, so to speak, and then. Uh, so asleep, uh, asleep at the wheel is going to play for about an hour or so, and then the night air show is going to start, which is just more like the twilight air show. But uh, there, it's going to go on for until official sunset hits, and then that's when, or actually, uh, end of evening civil twilight. So when night actually starts, and mm-hmm. then that that will end because that's the rules. And then um, it's after that, it's uh, um, they're going to have fireworks. And cool. so it's going to be, it's going to be kind of that. That's looking cool. This the salute to veterans uh, throughout the whole week is going to be another kind of cool thing. They're going to have um, lots of um, lots of events that have to do with the salute to veterans. Um, as far as aircraft goes, uh, I think the F twenty two is coming back. Um, 
And uh, I wish I had my whole list up here uh, that I could I could run through, but it's going to be it's going to be another good air venture. Uh, the fellow with the hydrogen peroxide uh, rotorcraft is going to be showing up there, and hopefully he'll fly. Blonde He's not a bleach show. blonde, is he? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're all working on the same lame joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's the hydrogen peroxide powered uh, rotorcraft. Ah, got it. Is, is uh, I, uh, I believe uh, he's coming and he's going to be there. Just confirmed yesterday, a Falk Wolf 190 is going to, to be there. Uh, and, uh, original? Uh, I believe so. I believe so. I'm going to have to try to find the details here while we're talking, but um, just got that in. So the, that is going to be there. Um, oh, what else? What else? It, we we have a meeting every week, but uh, I don't always get to see the. Uh, um, I, I, as I, I understand it, as I understand, I'm gonna put you on the spot here because we haven't organized yeah. a formal announcement here. But I'll put you on the spot. As I understand it, Wednesday morning at 11 a.m., something special is going to happen. Uh, right. Let's right. see now. Uncontrolled airspace is going to be doing this. I, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to babble about this. We probably should have done a more formal way of doing it. For years now, we've been doing two episodes, uh, two full regular episodes while we're at, uh, at uh, Air, Air Venture and love doing that. Um, we discovered um, that, uh, that during Air Venture uh, this summer, um, a very special thing for uh, for uh, uh, uncontrolled airspace is going to happen, and that is our 200th episode is going to happen um, while we're there in in Oshkosh. And uh, at first we just thought, well, this is going to be cool. We'll be out on the deck, and it'll be really fun. But in talking with Farid, uh, particularly Farid, and but some other uh, EA friends, um, they very graciously have offered us offered us the opportunity to do our 200th episode from um, what I understand is going to be a new venue um, there. At, at the uh, at the uh, convention, um, there's going to be right. a, a a small stage in the member center tent. Have I described that correctly? Well, yeah. At, you know, instead of, instead of trying to, to go over all the EA radio offerings, I'll just talk about the Welcome Center, which everybody knows about. The Welcome Center it's just west of Aeroshell Square, and they've they've always had. You know, you can sign up to be a, a member, and you can you can uh, look at Oshkosh 65 and there's all kinds of other things, all EAA offerings. Now we're going to make, we're going to make this a venue where at seven fifteen in the morning, you can actually Dick Nipinski usually would come on EAA radio and talk to the listening audience and say, Hey, this is what's happening today at EAA. Now you can actually get an in-person briefing from Dick Nipinski and he'll stand at, we're going to have about a 75 seat venue with a stage and he'll give a briefing to anyone who's up that early, have some donuts, mm-hmm. find out what's going on. Yep. Then at, at about 9 o'clock, he'll do another briefing uh, as people are walking in uh, down what they call Celebration Way. At 9 o'clock, there will be an, another one. Uh, he's going to give another briefing, and then there will be some other programming uh, between 9 and 11. Uh, I believe it's uh, some veteran-style programming, but I can't remember exactly. I don't want to you know, misrepresent it, but... The key thing for EA Radio is at 11, it's called EA Radio Live, where we are actually going to do like a live remote every day from that uh, between 11 and 12 from that venue and uncontrolled airspace will be doing their 200th episode on Wednesday, July 28th from there. So all your favorite, you, all your favorite UCAP personalities will be there in person. You can get autographs. You can tell them how much you enjoy the program. (laughs) Yeah. All of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, The cash is accepted. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Shh, shh, quiet, quiet. Um, Let's, 
we're really looking forward other... to it. It's going to be very yeah. cool. Um, we're, we're, we're talking among ourselves about uh, some ways that we can make it special, not simply because it's our 200th episode, but because we're doing it to a, a little bit more public audience there um, uh, in the member center. Um, we're very, very excited both about uh, reaching 200 and about uh, doing our uh, doing an episode uh, there on the uh, uh, in that public space on that stage. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and, and some some of the other people are going to be at that venue, and this is why this is a very it's a key it's a key get for you guys because uh, from 11 to 12 on Monday we're going to have Jack Pelton, Hal Weekly, who is a B17 pilot for Aluminum Overcast, and Lane Wallace from Flying Magazine. Tuesday, Jeff Skiles is going to be there for part of that hour. Uh, Wednesday is UCAP. Thursday, Bruce Crandall is a Medal of Honor winner is going to be there, and we've got some other slots to fill. Friday, the FAA administrator is going to be there, and also Sully Sullenberger is also going to be there during that hour. That's We're calling that our hour of power. Yeah, uh, you, clearly you found some other folks to fill out the rest of the week. I was going to yeah. say, who are those other people? Yeah, I know. That's great. <laughs> you mean Sullenberger's finally going to get something with a motor? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So, anyways, it's very, very exciting. Uh, both the stage in general all week long, and uh, our our uh, having access to it is very cool. We're we're looking forward to it. We're going to talk. This is your UCAP you. bonus episode. That's right. And and the, the upshot of all this is that this year we're doing three full episodes from uh, from Air Venture. So uh, that will be. It's like we didn't we weren't busy enough, um, but. Uh, right. But we're very, very excited about doing both of our uh, regular uh, two episodes from the uh, from the deck there at the radio station, and then also doing the uh, Wednesday morning one. It's going to be very cool. Um, plus, for what it's worth, we're probably going to be doing an EA, or a uh, uh, UCAP daily throughout the week as well. So we're going to be busy podcasters that week, and uh, it's going to be very cool. What else at uh, at uh, um, AirVenture this year? So the thing that I asked you to hold off on, um, we've been talking about, uh, because we are and lots of people are, very excited about this big DC-3 uh, reunion thing or this uh, gathering of the DC-3s, uh, including um, some sort of mass arrival. And and this is kind of breaking news. Apparently there's been some adjustments, some changes, some something. What, what's going on with this, Farid? Well, just um, there's kind of a this whole... DC-3 event was a two-pronged thing. Down in Sterling Rock Falls, which is northwestern Illinois, northwestern central, it's kind of it's toward Iowa, uh, about straight west of Chicago on the western side of Illinois. Um, they were going to have the – that's where all the DC-3s were going to stage. And they're going to have what's called the last time a reunion. It's a bunch of events over the weekend. And then – uh, any number, probably 30 to 50, were going to fly up in mass arrival and arrive on Monday of AirVenture. And EAA has been working with the organizers of the last time reunion. And there has been uh, just, there's been some coordination problems and some tension. And so this change in relationship is EAA is saying, and I'm, this is not my official Dick Nipinski uh, spokesperson, but what EAA is doing is saying, the reunion is going to go forward, and those organizers are going to handle that down in Sterling Rock Falls. Any DC-3s that want to come up to AirVenture and be part of the celebrations at AirVenture, EA will handle that end of it. Once you join the arrival and you come into AirVenture, we know how to do arrivals, mass arrivals, and we will organize that part, and we will, and of course, welcome them for the events at EAA. So instead of the close coordination and everything's kind of one, it's kind of two separate things now as far as the def- defining the relationship. Cool. Yeah. All right. Is that, is that kind of like the, the Bonanza arrival thing or something like that where, you know, they, they kind of get together offsite and, and uh, do their training and, 
and uh, everything. And then um, uh, once they're in the pattern at, at Oshkosh, it's uh, it's a it's a different deal. Yeah, it's, it's that's the best way to think about it. It's it's just that instead of making this all you know tying EAA to the events down in Sterling Rock Falls over the weekend, EAA will say, okay, well once everybody's headed toward Oshkosh, then you know we'll organize that part of it and uh-huh. and and welcome you in uh, for for events for the DC3. And so that's you're going to see in the news uh, in the next couple weeks more about this change in relationship. And so that that's that's basically what EAA is saying. Yeah. Have they? Uh, are you familiar with any of the specific planning for the mass arrival? Are they going to? You know, for example, the the you know Bonanza and the Cessna folks do sort of you know loosely grouped flights of three or two, that kind of thing. Um, I, I wouldn't imagine they're going to do that kind of thing with the DC threes, or are they? I mean, are they going to arrive all in trail, or are they going to arrive on you know using the left and right runways, or what are they going to do? Do you know? I'm not exactly sure. I haven't been part of those particular discussions. Only more of the, the kind of the communications and the uh, the, uh, the public publications portion of of that particular uh preparation i don't know if it's going to be in trail um by the way rick reynolds is making faces at me (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, (laughs) well spread the word that we want group we want flights of three formation landings that's what we want yeah flights of three and yeah that and video and and someone to take bets (laughs) yeah that's right that's right so Anyway, you yeah. think about it. There's not a and there's not a lot of money to to uh, for these operators to do a lot of practice, you know, in such a massive formation. So it's probably going to be something pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems to me it's going to be pretty spectacular one way or the other. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Anything else you wanted to call our attention to about uh, upcoming air venture before we move on here? Well, part of the DC three thing is the Liberty Jump Team, which uh, will be. Be doing static line jumps as though a platoon were jumping out of these DC threes, and they will be doing one of those jumps, maybe a couple at at Air Venture, um, to simulate an invasion. Yeah. Okay. And so that's going to be what cool. are the what are the dates? The Air Venture uh, dates. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I don't have it in front. July twenty sixth through August first. I figured Farid might have it in his head, so I'd let him do it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the the mass arrival is is Monday, uh, so July twenty sixth. Very good. Very good. Um, in uh, in a recent episode, we talked about uh, what's in our flight bag. Um, a, a listener had uh, had talked about that, and, and then we kind of rambled a little bit about it. A couple of listeners have checked in on the uh, on, in the forums. Um, listener M Ennis or Menace um, is uh, I can't imagine that's how he wants us to pronounce that. Uh, has posted uh, some Flickr uh, uh, pictures of his flight bag, so he's got a lot of gear in there. Uh, looks like all the things that you would expect. We, oh, look, he's even used the Flickr labeling feature to tell us what they all are. So he's got headphones and flashlights and electronic flight planners and knee boards and E6Bs and checklists and handhelds and uh, uh, approach plates. Oh, he carries his uh, passport, apparently, with him all the time. Of course, he's got his uh, his uh, uh, pilot certificate and medical, some pens and pencils, What's that? That's a Victrinox Explorer. What is that? Oh, it's a knife of some sort. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he's got uh, what's he got? He's got a pencil sharpener and he's got something that's labeled a caffeine toll. 
I wonder if that's a euphemism for money to buy his coffee. I'm not sure. So that's from uh, listener M. Ennis. And then I think we had another one here. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, I think it was Champ Guy who checked in, not with a picture, but with a description of all the different things here uh, that he carries. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but uh, you can check this out. Oh, he, he, says, he says, certainly Visa is first and best. That's Jeb's number one flight bag item. The... Uh, credit card as did as jeb says a live credit card that's right yeah so uh uh spare uh spare plugs wires and replace this is for flying as champ it's a very different kind of flying than, than some people do very uh, uh bare bones flying um but uh um he's talked about some of the things he carries in his flight bag um let's just let Fari check in on this um what kinds of things do you carry in your flight bag um particularly things that might be out of the ordinary well, actually, my flight bag is pretty boring because I just sold the share of my 172. Yeah, sorry to hear it, but uh, <laughs> you did that primarily um, because you relocated and you're no longer based down at the airport where it lives. Is that correct? That that's the 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 lion's share of the reason. Yes, uh, and so um, I'm looking at a Comanche. But as far as what's in my flight bag, eh, you know, just run of the mill stuff: uh, extra batteries, a flashlight, um, air sick bags. I did have for a while that little John. Uh, that's one of the first things my mom bought me when I first got my license. Here, you need a little John. Here, have this. <laughs> Sorry, I just oh, think that's man, I'm going to leave. I'm, uh, <laughs> in, in honor of the hour and the lack of hops adult beverage and Fareed being with us, I'm, I'm going to let that one slide. That's yeah. Well, that's another just... time I'll tell my story about uh, the relief tube uh, uh, incident in the King Air, but I'll say that for another episode. Yes, okay. Was but turbulence I'm gonna... involved? <laughs> no, no, unfortunately oh. not. It was a smooth, quiet, dark night. There are way too many possible titles for this episode. <laughs> uh, anything else Airframe in your flight bag, Farid? I wish I wish I could provide something more interesting, but I, I'm pretty boring in that respect. Okay, all right. Uh, mm -hmm. So. Here's a weird story, and I can't decide whether I think this is okay or not. Um, these folks uh, like to go flying and land their uh, small tail dragger aircraft um, on a beach and then hang out on the beach and then uh, take... Uh, my telephone's ringing. Usually I rings when you guys are talking and I can then mute. Um, this guy landed on the beach and then he... Uh, uh, got arrested or got his plane impounded or something like that because they said this is a bad. Uh, what do you guys think about this? I, uh, I think it's what a... he was charged with. Um, uh, I mean, what was he charged with? Trespassing? Um, um, operating a motor vehicle on a beach? What What was he charged with here? Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just turned my volume back up because the phone stopped ringing. He was apparently charged with uh, operating. He was charged with being a pilot is basically what he was char charged with. All right. He was, you know, he was charged with, you know, folks don't understand airplanes and think they're wildly dangerous is what he was charged with. Um, he was apparently charged with operating a motorized vehicle on the beach and reckless conduct. All right. Well, if 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 they allow ATVs on the beach or even cars, which uh, you know, in some beaches they do allow allow that, then there's no reason why an airplane shouldn't fall under that same vehicle uh, category. Yeah. What a picture! The picture actually shows the airplane on the beach with a little ATV next to it. Although we don't know whether that's law enforcement. Um, so I would bet so. Be uh, th this is 
let's put a little context uh, meat on this. Yeah. This is Tybee Island. It's Savannah. This is a, a this is a fairly tony piece of mm-hmm. real estate. Okay, this isn't like uh, when when my bride Annie and I married. We honeymooned on the Baja Peninsula and camped on the beach in Mexico. And in Mexico, all the beach is public. They don't allow private ownership of it. You can drive for miles and miles up and down the beach in whatever. Uh, not only will nobody bother you, you probably won't see anybody. And then you get to a really tony, usually pretty busy this time of year, tourist destination like Tybee Island there off Savannah. Uh, doing that, landing there, and, and I'm on this guy's side. But dropping in on a on, on a very busy place uh, without checking ahead of time is a little bit of an invitation to get somebody in your face. And in this case, the people in the face of, of the pilot were law enforcement. Uh, I'm all for the I guy. Would ag- but, I uh, would agree with the careless and reckless part uh, because uh, – but as far as the, you know, an airplane on a beach, that particular f- philosophically, I think that that's, that's overstepping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we, we discussed the uh, case of a couple of pilots landing their ski planes on a frozen lake up in uh, – I believe it was Minneapolis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yep. And where they landed fell inside the city limits, and the city had an ordinance against planes landing on their lake uh, inside the city limits. Now, I visited that part of the world in February to fly some ski planes, and we landed on all sorts of lakes outside South St. Paul, outside St. Paul, outside Minneapolis. We stayed the hell away from anything that was obviously inside the city limits of any city uh and the guy that was flying with me mark even mentioned that you know there's all these inviting frozen surfaces to go onto, uh but you don't want to take advantage of some of them because you'll get crosswise with the locals so uh you know poor mark jensen he's just out for a nice day with his mom it's a pretty beach he's done this before in other parts of the country uh you you got to be kind of situationally aware here. Uh, the more upscale the beach, the more upscale the area, uh, I'm just betting the more you're setting yourself up to get a ticket. Yeah. So, David, put, you put, a, put another way, the less remote the area, the less remote the beach. Yeah. So, David, <clears throat> you're, you're saying you landed on the beach when you were down in Mexico. Is that correct? Oh, well, we were driving on a beach. Oh, okay. All right. I'm wondering but what the issues are with landing on a beach. We, just there wouldn't have been any issue with landing an airplane on the beach yeah, because it was, yeah. it was wide open to any kind of vehicle. And, and I'm not talking about the any legal issues. I'm talking about the operational issues with the, you know, kind of finding the right line. Um, you know, some parts no. of beaches are very dry and, and, and soft sand two, and other parts are pretty wet. Go ahead, Jeff. I've never landed on a beach. Um, two issues come to mind. One, uh, you want to land when the when the tide is out. You want to land on the firm part of the sand. You don't want to land on the soft part of the sand that is above the tide line, um, the high tide line, I should say. Secondly, um, <clears throat> you want to get the airplane out of there before the tide comes in. Okay. Two very good good rules. Yeah. Land above the high tide mark. No, below it. 
You want to you want to land and op, you want to land and take off from the firm sand, which is the sand <clears throat> between low tide and high tide. I know. I understand the firm part. Uh, yeah. Do you want your airplane stops. where the tide can come in? Right. Okay. Have we figured it out yet? Uh, I'm, I know what I said. <laughs> okay. Um, how do you recognize this from the air? Is it, it, it? I would. My guess would be it's the dark colored sand is the firm sand, but I don't. That's just sort of a guess. Well, J- Jeb's right. Where the tide ebbs and flows, uh, when the water drains off, that it it kind of pulls the sand down. It gets fairly compact. Uh, you want to stay away from areas where it looks like the wind's been moving the sand around because mm-hmm. that's that's bound to be soft. But you can be above the high tide mark and find firm sand, uh, yeah. depending on the beach. Uh, I just wouldn't want to leave my airplane anywhere where water can get to it, and that's anywhere below the high yeah. tide mark. Particularly salt water, but um, right. another thing altogether. Okay. Well, we feel badly for this guy, but maybe he should have used a little more common sense, I guess, is the upshot of this whole uh, Savannah. Yeah, if you're going to try this at home, you, you, you'd really do well to avail yourself of uh, uh, information about any local restrictions. And, uh, you know, that, that spur of the moment, boy, that looks like a great place to land. Uh, make a note of it. Make a waypoint out of it on your portable GPS and come back after you've checked. There's this new thing, newfangled invention out there. It's called the telephone. Yeah. Pick it up, make a call. To who? Well, figure out whose jurisdiction that, that beach is and, and uh, you know, what are, the, what are the regulations involving uh, um, motor vehicles or, or uh, um, anything else uh, using that beach. I wouldn't necessarily say, hey, I want to go land my airplane on your beach. Is that okay? Uh, the answer is going to be no. Right, uh, but figure figure out what the rules associated with that particular strip of beach are. Uh, who owns it, for example? Um, you know, is it a is it a um, a national park, a state park, a, a designated seashore, something like that? Which, you know, brings up a whole different issue set of issues. Um, but do your homework. Okay. Finally, before we uh, start to wrap this thing up, um, I think it's David has called our attention to a story that uh, all I know is a story that has China and aviation biofuels in the headline. Um, I can't decide if this is a good story or a not so good story. Um, David, what's this all about? I'm looking for, oh, this one. Uh Uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. Yeah, I, uh, China is launching a huge biofuel development program for its aviation industry in partnership with our old friends at, uh, uh, at Boeing. Uh-huh. And what perturbed me and disturbed me about this is that we've got all this activity going on here in the States uh, looking for alternatives to petroleum as the stock for distilling aviation fuel. And... I worry that the, the 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 strange resistance to this idea. It's almost like it angers some people that you want to get off of oil and onto something that we could produce ourselves, pay ourselves for, keep the production jobs here for, uh, stop sending money to bad guys for their oil. Uh, all these things that would work in our favor. And China, which is uh, kind of uh, really really flexing its economic muscles these days, 
is getting a leg up on this with a with a concrete plan to what was the line here? They want to make twenty five percent of their aviation fuel stock out of biofuels. I'm sorry, fifteen percent by twenty twenty. They want to replace fifteen percent of their total diesel and gasoline consumption with biofuel by twenty twenty. Now, eventually, they don't have near the number of airplanes that we do, but I would bet you that the number of cars and trucks is 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 pretty impressive because we're talking about a, a nation of what one point one billion, one point two billion people now, uh, almost four times the population of the U.S. Uh, we need to be moving this ahead for our own good, for our own industry, for our own jobs, for our own security. Uh, and I would really love to see the people on all sides of the political spectrum get together and say, you know, replacing petroleum really has more benefits than downsides and and, and get over this childish reaction that there's something weak about going to a greener fuel source. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the best we're coming up with these days is pre-oiled shrimp. Okay, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, some other events on, on not aviation related will will serve as a wake up call here uh, to some of this. But um, it's just hit, literally head in the sand, stupid uh, for us to not have um, this kind of a program going on across the board, not just in um, in biofuels but in uh, so many other alternatives to energy um, that um, uh, it's just, it's, it's criminal. And we're going to be losing uh, a lot of ground to China, to many other countries in this. And uh, uh, at, its, at its most basic, it's simple um, economics. At its, at its more complex, it's a national defense, a national security issue. Mm-hmm. If yeah. we're, losing ground, we're losing ground to Mother Nature. We're just going to get, exactly. uh, you know, we're losing ground to the environment. And that, uh, yes, we do, we do need uh, to, to, to accelerate this because right now all we have to show for it is Willie Nelson driving around in a, in a biofuel bus. That's about right. all we really have to show for this. And some dithering in, in electric vehicles and, and electric aircraft. And that's about it, dithering. We're not... There's, there's no comprehensive word for it. There's no comprehensive uh, policy. Yep. There's no program, uh, national scale program. There's a lot of independent research that you know may or may not get coordinated with other research going on, whether it's nationally or internationally. Um, it, it's it's uh, scattered, catch as catch can. There is no coherence to it, and this stuff kind of sort of needs to get sorted out. Well, here in Kansas, we produce quite a bit of petroleum. Uh, you know, there, I can pass working, uh, uh, producing wells, pumping away sure. on my way to three or four of the airports I like to visit here. Uh, and when you start talking about, and, and there's some been some projects here in the state to develop uh, crops. We've got quite a quite a uh, quite an investment in uh, producing ethanol here in Kansas with a couple of big companies involved in it, one of them headquartered here in Wichita. Uh, but when you start talking to the general public here in the state about moving to biofuels, uh, I get this strangely uh, angry reaction. You know, 
uh, all these people need to make it on their own. You know, they're all looking for government handouts, blah, blah, blah. And some of the biggest recipients of major tax benefits in the country are oil companies, petroleum producers. Uh, but their defenders act like people trying to develop biofuels or trying to pick the public's pocket. Uh, hey, put them on a level playing field. Either give nobody any money, nobody any breaks, or help the bioproducers out on an equal footing with the petroleum producers. And, and, and let's move this down the road. Uh, like Jeb said, and it's more complex, and it's a national security issue. We cannot, as a nation, produce our way out of our dependence on imported petroleum products. Yeah. We have not the reserves. If we drilled and tapped and pumped everything we've got, we couldn't eliminate the imports that we have to have to sustain our energy needs. Yeah. We could, however, over a 15-year, 20-year period, go a long way to replacing huge percentages of that imported fuel, that imported petroleum stock, with stuff that's produced right here. Keep all the jobs here, keep the money here, keep the security issue out across the pond and fly away on something that smells like we're burning a french fry. We we are, we are not uh we are just enabling the oil companies to not innovate just like the auto industry. And That's right. We rather prop up the auto industry than force them to innovate and adjust and look what happened we had to bail them out whereas foreign auto companies had been innovating all this time reinvesting in R&D and they were already at the market with alternative vehicles that allow them to sustain their business model. The oil companies need to, to reinvest and innovate and transition out of the old way of making money, which is to just keep pumping petroleum out of the ground. Okay. We better move along here. Um, uh, Shout-outs. Let's see now. Um, I've got one here. Um, I just wanted to call attention to a series of photographs that I came across on the net. I'm not sure if a listener pointed these to me. I apologize if someone called my attention to these and I've forgotten who. But uh, um, a cool series of photos um, that show... A, let's see now, what is this aircraft? A, a Boeing, uh, wait a minute, the formal name of it is here. A Boeing 40C, 40C uh, biplane, uh, apparently one of the earliest airliners, um, is being shown uh, in flight along with a, a Boeing 777. And uh, uh, cool pictures, very pretty. Yeah, uh, really cool. I, I, I think that's actually a 787. Is that a... I'm sorry, I stand corrected. It's yep. a 787. Um, and that being the point is that, it, in theory, this is a picture of Boeing's newest and oldest uh, airplanes. According to the captions on this picture, um, this particular 1928 Boeing 40C um, is uh, serial number 1043. It's the oldest flying Boeing uh, aircraft of any kind. And it's well, it was at Oshkosh two years ago. And it looks very familiar. I don't know if this particular aircraft was there or one like it. Um, it's the only one. It's son. the only one. Okay. It's well, the only one. Well, it's the oldest. It may or may not be the only one, but it's very, very cool. Now, the these photographs one. make it, you know, put you in the mind of the legacy flights that you see um, at air shows these days. But I got to figure that if you saw video of these shots, 
shots, what you'd see is the biplane flying along beautifully, and suddenly you'd see this this 787 going zoom in the background. All right, with the guy snapping a picture at the particular moment. Because I, just, I imagine the 787, the Dreamliner, is going by as slowly as it can go by. It, it, you would think so, which although is probably it about seem... twice as fast as that airplane, that biplane flies. You, but you yeah. would think if it was going to go as slow as it possibly could, it'd be a little bit more dirtied up than it is, and it looks pretty clean. Um, it looks. I don't see any flaps extended on it, but uh, maybe I'm missing something. It does have a uh, little bit of a nose-up angle to it, but yeah. I, I suspect it, they made several passes here. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. yeah what, there's several pictures. The people, so. Go ahead. One of the people in our office does know does know the people involved in that shoot, and we got those pictures pretty early, but we had to kind of embargo them a little bit because Boeing needed to do some internal publicity with it, with the shots, uh-huh. and uh, it was kind of interesting. They I think if I remember right, they used a Cessna 210 as the photo ship. No, um, um, the, wait a minute. It talks about the photo ship. What, is, what does place. it say? I want to say it says um, Bonanza, but let me find it. Where is it says it? A36 Bonanza in here. Oh, yeah. It was a Bonanza. Okay. But it was kind of interesting to, to read about uh, setting up the shoot and everything. And, and um, it reminded me of a time when I was doing an instrument approach in a Comanche going to the Moses Lake, which is on the east side of the Cascades, and uh, having a 777 stuck behind me on the localizer. And mm-hmm. they finally gave up on us trying to, you know, they stuck them behind me. And they made us do a 360 on a localizer, and as we came around, everything was hanging off that triple seven just to <laughs> just yeah. to stay behind. Us. Yeah. <laughs> so beautiful pictures, and uh, uh, the uh, beautiful old airplane, this biplane. It's it's really something. So that's a little shout out to these folks. It's at uh, at a website called antiqueairfield.com. I won't give you the rest of the URL, but we'll put it in the show notes. And uh, but you might want to check out antiqueairfield.com. Other shout outs. Who's got something? I've got I've got two. One is uh, Jonathan Trappy, who is um, who who's on the cover of the June issue of Sport Aviation Magazine, a cluster balloonist. Um, he is he did the first overnight flight uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, set a record, and in a cluster balloon did an overnight uh, started uh, the night before and went all the way through the dawn and the articles about that. He's he's going to launch tonight to cross the English Channel in a cluster balloon. And uh, so he's leaving tonight. Just got the email while we were talking here on the episode. So be on the lookout in the news for results of that. And my other shout-out is to Jeb Burnside, actually. Uh-oh. 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 Yeah. <laughs> this, 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 I, this I is, deny anything and everything. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Fari. This is, this is a very delayed shout-out. Uh, this is not even a feature that you have anymore uh, on this podcast, which is the quote of the week. No, but we, the very, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Go ahead, Farid. The the very first quote of the week that you used uh, was from a story I wrote about the subsonics. And so I want to say thank you for using my quote, which was, we did run it up to 100% after a few starts. We were cautious, and we melted a lot of snow. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, because I was thinking you should realize that being the quote of the week is not always a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you for using my quote for your very first quote of the week. Well, Well, thanks. I'm glad glad someone remembers that. You're just encouraging him, Fareed. Why did you do this? (laughs) Other shout outs. Anybody got anything else? I I got one. Go Go ahead. ahead. Go Go ahead, ahead. Jeb. Go first. Okay. One real quickly. Um, um, I've talked about Lee uh, Stikeleather, my uh, my airplane mechanic, uh, uh, the man, man in black, in black. Uh, the satanic mechanic. There you go. Um, talked with him last night at length. He is in Helena, Montana, working on a project. Mm. Project is uh, checking out 
a Lockheed Constellation that has been sitting on the ramp at Helena, Montana for 20-plus years. It's actually an EC-121, which is the uh, airborne early warning uh, version of, uh, it's an Air Force aircraft, uh, uh, former Air Force aircraft, I should say. Um, Evergreen Airways, the, um, the uh, big uh, cargo and special ops operator out in the Northwest, owns the aircraft now. Uh, and uh, they have uh, plans to revitalize it. And he cool. and a time buddy of his are out there with some a couple of other people uh, going through the thing. Um, their objective over the next uh, few days, uh, next week or so, is to uh, uh, run the engines on this. They, they put power on it yesterday. He's only been out there a day or so. They put power on it yesterday. Um, have, have discovered a lot of things that they need to do. Um, but um, the owners want to try to fly the airplane out of there and get it to, uh, I don't know, Seattle, Oregon, wherever. Um, and, uh, of course, they need to do an assessment on this. But uh, um, it's just uh, just listening to his enthusiasm and uh, uh, talking with him about some of the challenges uh, that they have on this project and, and just the overall uh, concept of, of seeing a constellation, bringing another constellation back to life, yeah. seeing it fly. And uh, you know, hearing those big round engines run, uh, uh, these kinds of things, just is just very, uh, very overwhelming. And uh, I'll uh, I'll uh, report back and, and and whatnot on on their success here. But uh, uh, for now, it's looking good. And um, just a hats off to Lee. Very cool. Very cool. How many? How many Connies are there airworthy these days? Anyways, I I know a few years back there were two um, at at Oshkosh. Um, and the sense I had at the time was that that's all the airworthy ones there were. But does anybody know? I mean, do, does anybody that, hear? That know? was most of the airworthy ones for sure. Yeah, yeah. not all of them. Uh, I, don't, I know. don't know for certain. There's, I know of another Connie sitting in Tucson. It's actually uh, uh, Columbine Three that Lee's buddy uh, is, is kind of uh, um, near and, and has worked on in the past. Columbine Three actually was. Uh, uh, former Air Force One, uh, former Air presidential aircraft. I don't know if they called them Air Force Ones back then. Mm-hmm. This yeah. was uh, something I believe flew Eisenhower. Right. Uh, I know there's it's two. Not airworthy. Columbine yeah. uh, aircraft is not airworthy. Um, there are at least one or two airworthy right now. If, if this one makes the cut, uh, the the problem literally is the engines. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are R thirty three fifties or something like that. Twin row radials. Uh, suffice it to say, they don't make them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, they know they have one bad engine on the aircraft. They do have a spare. If they find a, a a second bad engine, then you know, kind of the project's over, and they'll have to truck it out of there if it ever leaves. Right. I uh, I haven't been up there in a while, but as of about a year ago, there were two Connies sitting on the ramp at um, Auburn, Lewiston, Maine. Uh, yeah. Part of a uh, a uh, long term project to try and you know take two Connies and end up with one airworthy Connie. I um, think Lufthansa, um, I believe somewhere, they, somewhere in the back of my mind, Lufthansa has some, uh, some of their fingers in that, in the pie of those two aircraft. The idea being to, to recreate one, restore one and operate it in Lufthansa colors. It necessarily probably would not be in the U S but, uh, um, there is, uh, um, um, uh, other efforts ongoing. Yeah, yeah, that's it's my recollection a, too. Is that Lufthansa yeah. had a hand in that? And, uh, it's just an incredibly expensive uh, proposition. 
um, because you're talking manual labor, um, these parts, these aircraft uh, um, components, whatever, simply aren't made anymore. They have to be, you know, disassembled by hand, rebuilt by hand. It's not like, uh, you know, changing the software on something. Yeah. Cool stuff. Cool stuff. Other shout outs? Who was it? Was it uh, Farid had another one or Dave? I have. I, I have. All right. Hang on. I'll, um, I'll go after Dave. All right. Uh, Dave, go first. Two quick ones. First, to our friends at the uh, Commemorative Air Force uh, down in Midland, Texas, who my, uh, my trolls t- and, and gnomes tell me uh, are about ready to uh, get Fifi, the only existing B-29 that's airworthy, back into the air. Uh, should be here in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, they were hanging the fourth rebuilt engine uh, as recently as uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, long story, the airplane has been grounded for several years now. First, they found some major corrosion in outboard wing section. Uh, they found some replacements and started working on those. And then they did some oil analysis, getting ready for a trip to Oshkosh. Both of these things happened just before the airplane was supposed to come to Oshkosh. Uh, and the uh, engines were making metal. And mm-hmm. they've been through a tremendous ordeal, a uh, huge expense, a lot of paid labor, a lot of volunteer labor to get Fifi back in the air. And that should be happening here uh, in, any week now. I mean, it's, it's actually they were down to hanging the fourth engine. Uh, last quick and dirty to the 400 and some odd folks who organized and staged international learn to fly day events in mm-hmm. their home operations uh, and the 40,000 people that uh, they, they drew out to learn about becoming a pilot, uh, including uh, my new friend Chauncey down at Wichita Aviation, the new flight school at Dead Cow International. Uh, we dropped in on that uh, the morning of International Learn to Fly Day. It was uh, Saturday the 15th. And he actually had 10 people on the first wave there and had some more come in later. And looks like he's picked up a couple of students from it. Yeah. yeah uh, we're we hearing... need more efforts like this. And we need to expand beyond telling people the nuts and bolts and dollars and cents to start really driving home the lifestyle. Yeah. We're the hearing people that, you get uh, to play with and the things you get to do. I agree. I agree. We're hearing that... Uh, uh, that Learn to Fly Day was wildly successful uh, all over the country. And uh, we should probably find someone to get them in the hangar to tell us a little bit more about uh, all the different things that went on around the country. But uh, but that's for another time. Uh, Farid, finish it up here. Uh, the last one is uh, to the to the, to the the mechanics over at the EAA's Weeks hammer, Hangar who, who got uh, aluminum overcast ready for its tour, including an operating ball turret, the only one in the world, uh, on the B-17, and I was over at the Sparkle and Shine party in, in March to help uh, uh, shine it up for its tour, and I got to ride around in the ball turret, and that was really fun. Cool. I like that. Yeah. So you actually got to sit in it and spin it around, and uh, you, you got to yes. like, fire the guns and everything? Oh, I guess that part of it's probably not... Uh... We had to make those sound effects, but everything else was was uh, the actual operating ball turret. It was really cool. And it, it, so obviously it's got to go up and down as well as spin, right? Because that, that's the whole legendary infamous story about the ball turret, right? Is that it, it not only spins and you know in order to aim the gun, but it retracts, right? It kind of gets sucked up into the belly of the, uh, 
it, it doesn't actually retract. It it stays it stays right where it's it, it okay. is. Um, at least the model that I was in, and you actually get in there in a crouch, and when you start out, you're actually looking down at the floor, right? And then you tip back in order to get horizontal uh-huh. to look straight out uh, in the in the direction the airplane's going. So cool. it's kind of it's a little disorienting. I, yeah, yeah. Well, that's very cool. Very cool. Got to check that one out this summer too. They All right. at the ball turret to give a place for short guys to work. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. That's what it was. They were feeling bad about the short guys. So they gave them a, they, they wanted to come up with something. I'm sure that's the way it worked. Hey, it's definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, thanks, Farid, for uh, joining us in the hangar. It's been too long. Um, but, uh, but we're glad you uh, were able to make some time and uh, probably have you come back uh, uh, sometime in about a month or so to uh, do a little more intensive uh, uh, air venture preview. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, Farid, tell me again what your new title there is over at EA. Well, I'm e-publications consultant for EAA. Basically, I I write, I help write all the newsletters, all the electronic newsletters. So, uh, send in your story ideas, and also um, read the newsletters, please. Yep. And where can people <laughs> find information on the net about the, these newsletters and EAA in general? Well, EAA.org, and just click on the uh, the media tab on EAA.org, and and uh, you can subscribe. Uh, you don't have to be a member to to subscribe to all the newsletters, but you do have to be for say E Hotline or Weekly One. But okay. uh, join EA anyway. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you. And Jeb Burnside is an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the net? JeBurnside dot com, um, AviationSafetyMagazine dot com, AvWeb dot com. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer and also an aviation journalist, and he's the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the net? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, davehigdon.biz, or, you know, do a Google Scrabble, and, and, and remember, I'm not a physicist or a golfer. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage in the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. So it's like we've got an embarrassment of riches here this week. Um, sometimes I have to like scrape around to find a title for the episode. Let's see what I've got so far. The possibles are Responding to the Innovation, Steering by Kahootek, Little John, or pre-oiled shrimp. I don't know what you think. <laughs> the last one's kind of my favorite so far. We'll see what I come up with. Hey, David, you were going to say something? There's an easy way to live a long and happy life. Go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. So long. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFM. <laughs> <laughs>